Hello? Hello, sir, lad? Hello, sir, lad? Are you here, laddie? Huh. Where in the world is he, then? Ah, here's a note. He's... He's in therapy. Uh, says Max, episode 120 intro is ready to go. Uh, just take button one out of pause. <laughs> well, of course, lad. Everything I do is with me pause. Uh, well, all right, here goes, then. Cato knew he couldn't pick her up, but he knew he didn't need to. All he needed was the letter opener. He broke free and made his way back to where Kakia had dropped it. Just as he was about to pick it up, he heard her chilling voice behind him. Pick it up and you're dead. Kakia screeched. It's laced with poison. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. Only he's not really here. That were just his recorded voice then. Max, why did we hear you talking at the beginning? Well, announcer lad aren't here then. He just left this note. Uh, 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 maybe later. Uh, therapy? The old boy's in therapy? Oh, my, well, uh, I for one say it is about time, no? Uh, indeed. Why, he's shown signs of... <clears throat> uh, we got a wee little show to start here. Uh, so, uh, uh, please welcome your hosts, uh, the pretty kitty who can be quite witty, uh, Lisette Briand. Oh, merci, Max. And uh, next, the mouse whom anyone would espouse to allow him into the house, uh, Nigel P. Monaco. Well, much obliged, my pet. And uh, finally, the Scottish terrier who'd break any barrier to make our day merrier, <laughs> uh, Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce. Hi, uh, that were good, Mosey. Hey, who needs a nouncer lad, then? Uh, no, no, Max. Uh, maybe we need to be nicer to monsieur. Maybe this is why he needs uh, therapy? Uh, well, perhaps you're right, my pet. Though I don't believe we are the cause of his, uh, uh, condition, uh, we certainly wouldn't want to exacerbate the issues with our comments. Aye, and we don't want to make things worse, either. Right. We, oh, uh, if monsieur is a little, uh, broken, I am just glad he is getting fixed. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, he, he's getting... What? <sighs> Healed, Max. Aye, yes, sir. Wait, what did I do? Not heal, Max. He said healed. In other words, it is good that Monsieur is getting help. Oh, c'est tragique. I did not know he was getting therapy. Do you think he has been seeing someone for long? Well, I for one certainly see no indication of such. Hi, Mousy. If he has been going at it for a while, he should be asking for a refund. Max, let us start trying to be more supportive, huh? He is crying out for help, no? Uh, aye, lass. You're right. Ooh, hey, maybe I could become his therapy dog. I just need to wear a collar and a leash and one of them wee yellow jackets, and then I'd get to go to all them fancy restaurants with him. Uh, I say, uh, uh, when did the uh, Burger Barn become a fancy restaurant? Well, it is to me. You know I'm all about meat and meat byproducts. Gentlemen, please. Ew. Meat byproducts? <laughs> Says the cat whose food smells like the back alley of a fish market. Now, Max. At the end of the day. Major point. A really hot, muggy day. All right, you comprehend. 
<sighs> Gentlemen, we have a podcast to do, remember? Uh, indeed, and uh, we are down to the last three chapters, and this is a big one today, for we are closing in on one of the pivotal points in all of American history. And I know which button to mash to make it happen then. And it's time for you to do that, so hit it, Max. Chapter 66 Cloak and Dagger Scotchtown, March 17, 1775 The fire popped on the hearth in Patrick Henry's bedroom, startling Liz. She had been sitting next to the fire, watching Patrick sleep. The weight of the world was on his shoulders, and Liz had heard his quiet sobs as he drifted off to sleep. The pallor of Sally's death still hung in the air over Scotchtown. Sadness filled the eyes of his children, and everyone spoke in hushed tones around the plantation. No laughter, no dancing, and certainly no fiddle music had filled the halls in the three weeks since Sally's death. Patrick had lost his best friend, his first and only love. He was now a widower with six children, and yet he was needed to serve his country by attending the Second Virginia Convention in Richmond in just a few short days. He didn't even have time to grieve properly. Duty called, and Patrick had learned by watching those who had run the race before him that life was no respecter of heartache. Like Samuel Davies, who had pressed on to the task of fighting for religious freedom after he lost his wife and baby, his entire family. So, too, must he put one foot in front of the other to fight for all the freedoms at stake for the people of Virginia and, ultimately, for America. Today is St. Patrick's Day, Liz thought to herself. If there ever was a saintly servant, it is you, my Patrick. She glanced over at Patrick's desk, where sat his open Bible and a scattering of documents. His work had become a blessing in disguise, for in it he found a strange solace and a distraction from his unresolved grief. Liz walked over and jumped up on the desk, her cat's eyes glowing with the reflection of the hearth's fire. She saw that Patrick's Bible was opened to Second Chronicles 14. She had heard him mutter aloud verse 11, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless, against the mighty. He was reading about Judah's king Asa facing the Cushite army, a foe far too powerful to defeat with its vast army and hundreds of chariots. But God's forces intervened and crushed the enemy against impossible odds. In his nightly hour of scripture reading this evening, Liz also had heard him flipping through Jeremiah, softly quoting verses 521 Hear this now, O foolish people without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. And 6.14 Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Earlier in the day, Liz sat and watched Patrick break the wax seals off several letters with his ivory letter opener. Those letters contained news from fellow delegates around the colony about growing tensions among the people. The iron heel of the British army was already pressing its might against the necks of the people of Boston. What was to prevent them from coming southward to do the same in Virginia? Liz moved Patrick's ivory letter opener out of the way with her paw and read the resolutions he was preparing to offer at the upcoming convention. She scanned his resolutions, 
muttering quietly as she read, Resolved that a well-regulated militia, composed of gentlemen and yeomen, is the natural strength and only security of a free government, that such a militia in this colony would forever render it unnecessary for the mother country to keep among us, for the purpose of our defense, any standing army or mercenary soldiers always subversive of the quiet and dangerous to the liberties of the people, and would obviate the pretext of taxing us for their support. Liz grinned, catching Henry's humorous jab at the British monarch, who claimed to keep a standing army for the purpose of protecting the colonists. Protect them against whom, exactly? The king further dared to dip his hands into the pockets of the people to pay for this protection? Even in such a serious situation, you know how to add humor to lighten the moment, Mon Henry. He went on to pen that since Virginia's militia laws had expired, and Lord Dunmore refused to call the House of Burgesses to convene a legislative session, the Second Virginia Convention itself should essentially act as the government of Virginia in this crisis. Liz's eyes widened. Mon Dieu! He wishes to bypass the royal governor. Once the king sees these reserves, they will be seen as treason. This could launch the entire war. Resolve, therefore, that this colony be immediately put into a state of defense and that a committee to prepare a plan for embodying, arming, and disciplining such a number of men as may be sufficient for that purpose. On another sheet of paper, where he had worked out his thoughts, was scribbled in Latin, Igitur qui desiderat pacem, praeparate balum. Therefore, whoever wishes for peace, let him prepare for war. Liz looked over at Patrick, in awe of what she had just read. No one will ever realize that a man carrying such silent grief and the weight of the world on his shoulders could rally a nation in such a powerful, decisive way. Say incredible. Psst, Liz, you are wanted downstairs, my dear, came Nigel's voice in a whisper as he peeked around the slightly cracked door. He and Cato had recently returned to Scotchtown. Liz jumped down to the floor and went to the door. What is this about, mon ami? Patrick's fiddle is no longer silent, Nigel answered with a knowing grin. There you be, lass, Kate said, greeting her as she and Nigel entered Sally's bedroom in the basement. Killerman wants to have a word with all of us. Patrick had left his fiddle down here in Sally's room the day she died. There had been no reason to play it since, so he had left it where it was. Nigel picked up his bow and pulled it across the strings of Patrick's fiddle. Once more, the magical notes rose into the air with words from the group's wise leader, Gilliman. Good evening, Liz. How is Patrick resting tonight? Uh, good evening, Gilliman, Liz replied. He is sleeping, but it must be from exhaustion. I just read the resolves he will present to the Second Virginia Convention. I do not know how he can sleep with all that is on his heart and mind these days. Indeed, but Patrick is drawing strength from the Maker, and he will accomplish what the Maker has long purposed for him to do. 
to rally a nation to independence. Kate, Liz, and Nigel looked at one another in alarm. Are you saying it's finally time for the revolution to begin? Kate asked. The time has been coming for over a decade, as you know. Patrick's voice has been leading the charge in speaking the truth that the people of this nation need to hear. And now they need to hear it again, but this time with even greater urgency and with a call to action. Like an eagle forced out of its nest, Veritas, truth, will fill the hall of that convention when he speaks, despite those who do not wish to hear it, and will have to move from their comfortable, infantile perches. The enemy always desires bondage, not freedom for the human spirit. The last thing he wants is freedom for an entire nation of God-fearing souls. For the first time in history, one nation of people under God has the opportunity to form a free republic with a government beholden to them instead of those people being beholden to the government. So be vigilant and on the alert. There will be danger in Richmond to stop Patrick. Will Max be there to keep him safe? Kate asked. I feel I'd best stay with the children. Yes, Max will shadow George Washington from Mount Vernon and be there to protect both him and Patrick Henry in Richmond. Kate, you are indeed most needed here with the children. But Liz, you need to go to Richmond. Clarie will transport you after Patrick rides off on Ms. P to Richmond. You will keep watch for danger en route. Nigel, you need to fly on Cato to keep watch from above. Understood, Gilliman, Nigel answered with a frown, still pulling his bow across the strings. I've been reviewing the fiddle's riddle, and we have reached the final line about the voice after which something new will begin. I must say, it troubles me deeply. A voice that is dying on the out and inside? Please do not tell me that my Henry will die, Liz cried. Dying happens in far more ways than just when breath leaves the body. Remember, there are always deeper shades of meaning to my riddles, Liz. You must protect Patrick from the evil forces coming against him, indeed. But also understand that this is when all of the layers of history I gave you at the beginning of this mission finally come together. And that includes Plutarch and Cato. Please give me something specific to help me understand, Gilliman, Liz pleaded. I can better help my enemy if I have some idea of what to expect. Always expect the unexpected when it comes to the Maker's assignments. But I will grant your request with as much as I know, for even I do not know everything that will come. The ivory letter-opener that I left in the red cloak I gave to Patrick is the key to the speech he will give in six days. He will use it at a crucial moment, but even he will not know it until that time. You must ensure that it remains in his cloak pocket when he enters the fourth day of the convention. Do you mean the one sitting on his desk? Liz asked. Why is that particular letter opener important, Gilliman? Where did you get it? 
You have seen it before, Liz, but it was in a different form. I will leave you with the same clue as I left you with when you started this mission. Focus on Plutarch, and remember, you will connect all the dots for this mission down to the letter, just as you always do. It is time. Godspeed. The notes ceased floating into the air, and Gilliman was gone. It is time indeed, came the voice of one peering in at the basement window. Time for some cloak and dagger. Swan Tavern, Richmond, March 22nd, 1775. Everyone had arrived safely in Richmond from Scotchtown. Clarie gave Liz a ride in her saddlebags, while Nigel flew on Cato's wings. Max met up with them after George Washington rode into town. Upon their arrival, the animals stayed out of sight so Patrick wouldn't know they were there. Tonight, as every night, Max stood guard outside the tavern, while Liz and Nigel crept upstairs to the room where Patrick Henry was staying. They had tried their best to keep an eye on the letter opener, which was in Patrick's cloak pocket when he left Scotchtown. Patrick was sharing a room with his half-brother John Syme Jr. and with George Washington. The room was filled with the snores of the tired men who had been at the convention for three days. Liz and Nigel jumped up onto a bench at the foot of Patrick's bed and whispered so as not to wake the men. Gilliman said I would figure this mission out down to the letter. Now I see that this means not only the letters we have arranged over the years, but Patrick Henry's ivory letter opener as well, related Liz. It all began on Plutarch's desk. Of course, ivory. I'm not following you, my dear. Uh, do you mean when you ensured that Plutarch would write about Cato the Younger? Nigel asked. How is Patrick's letter opener related? Layers of history, one on top of the other, mon ami. Just as Gilliman said, Liz marveled. When I sat on Plutarch's desk for my mission to ensure that he wrote about Cato the Younger, something strange happened. I accidentally knocked Plutarch's ivory statuette of winged victory onto the floor. A fragment of the wing broke off. She looked at Nigel in disbelief and smiled. That ivory fragment was in the shape of a feather from Victory's wing. Nigel's eyes widened behind his spectacles. And that feather fragment became Patrick's ivory letter opener that Gilman left in the red cloak for him to find. My dear, this is extraordinary. All these years, Patrick has wanted an eagle feather. If only he knew he held in his hands an ivory feather from the very desk of Plutarch. We oui. So I have figured out one part of Plutarch that Gilliman wanted me to see, but there still must be more layers of history to connect for what my Henry is getting ready to do, Liz realized. Nigel straightened his spectacles. Well, my pet, let us think this through step by step. Right, so Plutarch wrote about Cato the Younger. And who would have benefited most by reading the historical account of the Roman patriot besides young Patrick Henry in his studies? Liz thought a moment. 
and brightened. Joseph Addison, who wrote the play Cato. And who then has benefited most from the play Cato? Nigel posed. At that moment, George Washington let a loud snore rip through the room. Liz giggled. Well, it is George Washington's favorite play. Precisely, as it is for most of the ardent patriots gathered at this convention. <laughs> Nigel added, followed by a jolly chuckle. <laughs> Our dear Eagle Cato also adores his namesake play since we saw it together through the roof in Philadelphia. I am glad Cato was able to see the play, Liz replied with a smile. C'est magnifique. Just look at all that has happened from the stroke of Plutarch's pen that night on his desk. But I still do not see why Gilliman insisted Patrick's letter opener be in his cloak tomorrow. Suddenly another memory from that night on Plutarch's desk entered her memory. She reached for Patrick's red cloak, which was draped across the bench, and put her paw into the pocket, searching for the letter opener. It's not here, and I think I know who took it. Someone who has tried to take it before. Whatever do you mean, dear girl? Nigel asked, scurrying up the cloak and down into the pocket to make sure the letter opener wasn't hidden deep inside. He popped his head out as he hung on to the pocket. Who could possibly have taken it? The one time I didn't believe the meaning of a name. I didn't want to believe it. I've been so blind. Liz shook her head at herself. That night with Plutarch, after I had broken the statue, we heard another crash outside on his terrace. We ran outside to find that Plutarch's oleander plant had crashed to the tile floor. He thought it must have been the wind, but now I know it was not the wind. And what was it? Nigel implored, impatient to understand. I saw the footprints of a creature in the scattered dirt on the terrace, but before I could identify the creature they belonged to, the wind snatched them away, Liz explained. Plutarch called to me, warning me not to touch the oleander, as it is poisonous to cats. Nigel looked up in alarm. Poison? There have been mysterious poisonings surrounding Patrick and the other young patriots ever since... Ever since I rescued Kakia from the Tower of London, Liz finished Nigel's train of thought. Those footprints were hers on Plutarch's terrace. She is not a mortal being. Do you know what her name means? Oh, dear, Nigel answered with a paw up to his mouth. Kakia in Greek means evil, trouble, and desire to injure. Liz nodded. And Kakia comes from the root word kakos, which means bad, evil in the widest sense, inwardly foul. She paused and looked Nigel in the eye. And poison. She poisoned the guard in the tower before we arrived. She was trying to get to Cato Zen. I didn't think it mattered, so I did not tell Gilliman that I had freed her. Oh, dear. What about George Washington? Nigel said with a paw to his mouth. Liz drew in a quick breath and nodded. Clarice said someone intentionally poisoned young George on Barbados 
with the smallpox virus. Gilliman allowed it, since it would provide him with immunity protection later on. Yes, but there was another attempt on George Washington and Patrick Henry with poisoned food in Philadelphia, Nigel added worriedly. Could she have made other attempts on Patrick and other humans that we simply don't know about? Liz closed her eyes as her mind raced to recall other instances where Kakia could have been involved. She suddenly opened her eyes. The panther that failed to kill Kato and Patrick was found poisoned. Nigel gulped. Max told me that when he went looking for the panther in the woods, he smelled a foul stench. He smelled it again in France with the wolves, in Boston, and again in Philadelphia. But those encounters involved humans. The little mouse put a paw to his forehead. Max said it was a stench he had not smelled since before ancient Egypt. Since the Ark. Since Charlatan. Liz answered in shock with a shiver down her spine as it dawned on her who they were dealing with here. Kakir is not the discarded bitter cat who was abused and named by humans. She is something completely different and wicked. If Kakia is immortal, that means she is one of the enemy's minions, Nigel said gravely. But not just any minion. She is clearly a leader or one of the enemy's generals in the animal kingdom, Liz answered gravely. Snakes are the only creatures who can shed their skins and not die. Do you mean to say she could be like Gilliman is for the Order of the Seven? Nigel wondered as the blood drained from his face. Can Kakia change form like Gilliman or Clary? It is a theory we must consider. Liz wrinkled her brow. Something deeper than she could comprehend was going on here. She shook her head with this revelation. For now, we must find out immediately what she is up to. Nigel gulped. What could she possibly be doing with Patrick's letter opener? Liz's mind was racing. She looked over at Patrick, who was sleeping with his right hand wrapped in a cloth. He had cut it on a small, jagged piece of metal, mysteriously lodged in his saddlebag after today's session at the convention. When Patrick searched for a copy of the last petition to the King of England in his saddlebag, he cut his hand. Nigel, can poison be absorbed through the skin? Certain poisons can. Arsenic and cyanide come immediately to mind, but an open wound is necessary. Nigel answered. His face fell, and he shot a glance at Patrick, now understanding Liz's train of thought. And if the letter opener were laced in poison and stuck inside Patrick's cloak? Liz asked. Oh, dear. Just like mythological Hercules, Nigel exclaimed in alarm. Hercules was killed by poison smeared on his cloak. A Greek tragedy, no less, Liz realized. Just the poetic type of death message that the Greek cat would send. Nigel, I believe she somehow stores a letter opener by slipping inside the convention 
and that she plans to lace it with poison to then slip into Patrick's cloak. She also knows he is supposed to use the letter opener in his speech tomorrow. Then we must intercept it before she gets that far, Nigel answered determinedly. We must go tell Max. He can help us find Kaikia with that nose of his, Liz suggested. We'll have to spread out in order to spot her. If only we could know where she will appear. Eagle Eye, Nigel exclaimed. On our flight here, I told Cato about Gilliman's message that Patrick would use the letter opener in his speech. Cato said he would stay nearby, as he could not wait to see what Patrick would say and do. Our eagle can search from the skies above. Then we must find Cato as well. Liz looked over at Patrick, who breathed deeply in his sleep. I will not allow Kakia to succeed, Mon Henry. She jumped down from the bench at the foot of the bed, where Patrick's cloak was draped, and nudged Nigel. Allons-y! There is no time to waste! Richmond, March 23, 1775 Cato circled back over the falls of the James River and caught the thermals to remain aloft as he scanned the ground below for any sign of Kakia. His anger at hearing the threat to Patrick Henry launched him immediately into flight, and he called back to the others that he would find her if it was the last thing he did. The skies were overcast, which actually helped Cato's search, as he did not have to look against the glare of the sun. He could see Max and Liz out searching for the enemy cat below. Nigel had agreed to stay hidden down in Patrick's cloak pocket to intercept the poisoned letter opener if Kakia got that far. As Cato circled Church Hill, where Henrico Parish Church sat, he suddenly saw a cat-like movement coming up from the south side of the city. He soared downward to get a closer look and saw that it was Kakia with the letter opener in her mouth. Cato came swooping in and startled the cat, screeching and reaching out with his talons to grab her. She immediately tossed the letter opener on the ground and swiped back with her claws, hissing violently at the eagle. Her speed caught Cato off guard as they wrestled on the ground for a moment, tumbling down the hill as they fought against one another. Horrible sounds filled the air with the guttural growls and hisses of this sinister cat against the screams of the eagle. Cato knew he couldn't pick her up, but he knew he didn't need to. All he needed was the letter opener. He broke free and made his way back to where Kakia had dropped it. Just as he was about to pick it up, he heard her chilling voice behind him. Pick it up and you're dead, Kakia screeched. It's laced with poison. I'm immune to it, of course, but you're not. Cato paused with his talon perched over the letter opener. I'm not going to carry it in my mouth like you, wicked cat. I've got my talons to carry it. You'd better look at that little eagle foot of yours, Kakia teased with a wicked grin. Cato looked down, and drops of blood were on the grass under his foot. He lifted his other foot and saw that it was cut as well, sliced by Kakia's razor-sharp claws in the fight. He looked at her with fierce anger. 
Kakio walked up to Kato and slowly circled him, speaking in a mocking tone. So you have a choice to make, Kato, but there are plenty to choose from. Let's see, shall I name them for you? She sat down in front of him and calmly curled her tail around her feet, looking at him with sinister eyes. You can pick up the letter opener with your mouth, and you're dead. Or you can pick it up with your talons, and you're dead. Or you do nothing, and I slip it into Henry's cloak, and he's dead. Or you can stop me from delivering it at all, and your precious Patrick never utters the most important words he will ever say to change the course of history. <laughs> she laughed coldly. My, what a poetic moment. You actually get to choose to live up to your name or not. You can fly away and save yourself. She got right in his face and whispered, you can choose to be free from this situation by just leaving. Cato lowered his head as he realized the impossible situation before him. He was immobilized by fear. He stared at the letter opener, which was so close yet emotionally out of his reach. Kakia was enjoying watching his struggle of indecision and rolled on the ground playfully. Poor you! Can I help you decide? Kakia offered in a sarcastic voice, stretched out on the ground next to the letter opener. She popped out her pointer claw and scraped it along the ivory. How about I tell you? What will happen to you if you pick up this letter opener? I've laced it with aconite, a personal favorite of mine. This poison works splendidly on wolves who fail me. <laughs> she laughed, recalling the dead wolves who failed to kill the young Marquis de Lafayette. First, you'll notice tingling and numbness in your mouth, and the sensation of ants crawling all over you. Your body temperature will drop, followed by your pulse. Then your heart rate will become deliciously irregular, as you're about to have a heart attack. Then you'll feel nauseous, You'll vomit, and your stomach will be racked with pain. You'll have difficulty breathing, and then... <laughs> I love this part, especially for you, my eagle-eyed friend. Your pupils will dilate, causing blurred vision. <laughs> then the real fun begins. Your face will become paralyzed, and anxiety and tremendous fear will set in as the sense of suffocation consumes you. She rose to her feet 
and crept over to whisper in Cato's ear, Death comes in a few short hours. <laughs> she chuckled softly. Cato's heart raced, and terror held him in a vice as he heard the fate that awaited him should he pick up that letter opener, or the fate that awaited Patrick should he do the same. Our time here is short, so you must decide. What will it be, Cato? Kakia asked him. Liberty or death? Those words immediately touched the deep recesses of Cato's soul. The eagle snapped his head up and glared at the wicked cat. The words from the play echoed in his mind. It is not now time to talk of aught, but chains or conquest, liberty or death. I know what course I must take. He flapped his wings, picked up the letter opener with his talons, and soared off into the sky, leaving Kakia screaming on the ground below. Patrick Henry pulled his red cloak tightly around his shoulders, wincing at the wound on his hand. He had removed the cloth wrapped around the cut. He didn't wish to appear weak on any level today. As he turned the corner to walk up the dirt path leading to Henrico Parish Church, a chilly easterly wind hit him in the face, sending shivers through him. He looked up at the cloudy sky. It looked as if it might snow. Regardless of the cold weather outside, he knew things would heat up quickly once he took to the floor of the convention inside the church. The Henrico Parish Church stood on the highest point of Richmond, a small trading town built by William Byrd II. He named it Richmond, for it reminded him of Richmond-on-Thames in England. The town was located at the seven-mile rapids and roaring falls of the mighty James River, separating the Piedmont and Tidewater regions of Virginia. Peyton Randolph had called this Second Virginia Convention to elect delegates for the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia in May. But everyone knew there were other pressing security matters at hand. Lord Dunmore had refused to call the Assembly of the House of Burgesses to order since his return from the Ohio country in December. Randolph wisely proposed that this second illegal convention meet far from the eyes and ears of Dunmore in Williamsburg. Putting 60 miles of distance between them, the Virginia delegates could meet in safety and have plenty of warning should Dunmore make a move to force them to disband and then incur his wrath. The layers of history surrounding this chosen location and building were not lost on the delegates. It was in this same area, a century before Richmond was founded, that Nathaniel Bacon had led his rebellion against the royal governor. And it was in a church in Jamestown that America's first legislature met in 1619. The cause of liberty could find no better sanctuary than a church, for liberty itself was born on its altar of grace. The Henrico Parish Church was the only building large enough in the market town of Richmond to house the 120 delegates. It was a small wooden building with 15-foot ceilings and a peaked roof. A recent addition made it into the shape of a T, with doors at each end and semicircle-topped windows running along the sides. Many delegates had ridden for a week over muddy roads to reach Richmond. For others, their journey only took a day or two. 
Patrick Henry had ridden only a day from Scotchtown to reach Richmond. He quickly joined his circle of friends and family whom he knew he could count on to support his resolutions, including his half-brother, John Syme Jr., his uncle, Anthony Winston, and his brother-in-law, William Christian, who was with Colonel Andrew Lewis, commander of the troops at Point Pleasant. Other ardent young patriots in Virginia he could count on included Richard Henry Lee, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Paul Carrington, who had been his ally in the Stamp Act fight. The Old Guard of Virginia, who were reluctant to stir up any trouble, thereby arousing the king, but would oppose Patrick Henry in a heartbeat, included Richard Bland, Benjamin Harrison, Archibald Carey, Edmund Pendleton, Robert Carter Nicholas, and Carter Braxton. Patrick Henry knew most of the delegates at the convention, as most of them had served with him in the House of Burgesses. Together they exchanged the latest news from around the colony. They discussed the movement afoot in the northern colonies to form militias, as had been done in Delaware, Maryland, and even closer to home in Fairfax County, across the Potomac River. George Washington himself had presided over the Fairfax meeting, where George Mason authored the Fairfax Resolutions, declaring they were prepared to defend their rights and privileges as Englishmen under the British Constitution. Things in Boston remained tense, according to reports from Samuel Adams, and they remained alert to the very real possibility that General Gage would strike at their provincial militia at any moment. News from London confirmed the king's harsh tone in Parliament and the unlikely possibility he would ever answer the petitions sent by the colonies. Peyton Randolph relayed the disturbing news, quoting a report that the patriots are to be treated as rebels and enemies without any ceremony. The Second Virginia Convention opened on March 20th and had spent the last three days getting formally organized and reviewing the proceedings of the First Continental Congress. Peyton Randolph was selected and referred to as President rather than Speaker. Reverend Miles Selden of Henrico Parish was named Chaplain, and John Tazewell was selected as Clerk. Everything so far in this convention had been expected, but now it was the fourth day, and Patrick Henry was about to do the unexpected. We, oui, it is true. Mon Henry is about to set their worlds on edge. Hi, kind of like a nonsense lad's world, eh? I mean, he's not doing that therapy for nothing, then. Uh, quite right. Seems the old boy isn't uh, quite right. <laughs> uh, he does seem to have a loose grip on reality, no? Hey, uh, did you know that a nonsense lad likes to talk to animals? We oui, that is true, and he even believes they talk back to him. <laughs> right, uh, he actually believes he can have conversations with four-legged mammals. Uh, I dare say, uh... We Apparently, monsieur is living in a fantasy world, no? Indeed, and uh, strangely enough, that brings us to this week's Jenny's Corner, as she too loves to take journeys into several areas with her stories and finds a way to weave them all together. Without needing therapy, either, <laughs> So, uh, hello, Miss Ginny. Hey, everybody. What are you curious about? What? Don't you know? <laughs> Just kidding. Max, uh, Madame, today we are dealing with the difference between reality and, uh, well, uh, fantasy, perhaps? 
Indeed. And, as an author, you actually do the same, but uh, quite on purpose, don't you? Uh, Can you explain, uh, using today's chapter as a case in point? This chapter is a great example of all three layers of my genre sandwich, (laughs) as I like to call it. History, fiction, and fantasy. Because you'll see the real history of Patrick Henry's resolves that he wrote as he was getting ready to head to Richmond. And I have them word for word there. And then you see him staying at the Swan Tavern in Richmond and preparing for the convention there, where he would offer up one of the most famous speeches in American history, considered only second to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address as the most important speech ever given in history. So you've got the real history of his resolves, of them heading to Richmond, the historical layer, and then the fiction layer of just his interaction with coming up with those resolves and being there. And then you've got a lot of fantasy going on with the Epic Order of the Seven team and kind of tying several plot lines together and coming up with the whodunit at the very end of who's been causing all the mischief and some pretty brutal things as the bad guys seem to have taken the day. But one of the things was this dagger. And this was a real super fun plot line for me to combine the layers of history all the way back to ancient Rome. And like I said before, that ivory letter opener was something real that Patrick Henry had. And we still have it today. You can go to Patrick Henry's Red Hill in Brookneal, Virginia, and see that exact letter opener under glass. And it's just such a cool thing to know that he held that in his hand uh, during the Liberty or Death speech. His family passed it down through generations, and then it finally came to Red Hill to the museum there. I hope you'll enjoy how I wove together all of these three layers in this chapter. Kind of the whole Cato plotline that I've been bringing together, not only through the play and the words of Cato, but through the character, the bald eagle, Cato, who was the embodiment of all of that. I like to try to give you characters that can kind of be like the mascot, if you will, for a theme or an idea to help you get your mind and your thoughts and your emotions around something that was crucial to America's story. And Cato was one of the most crucial And we shall see how very crucial indeed, over the next two weeks, our final two chapters of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. I say thank you, Miss Jenny. Oh, Max, Nigel, he is here. Let us try to be nice. Aye, we don't want to upset him then. Ah, hi, gang. I'm sorry I'm so late. I... No need to explain, monsieur. Everything is fine. Aye. It'll be under control. No need to fret, old boy. All is well. Okay, I just wanted to explain. I had a therapy session, and this was the only time that he could... No explanation needed. We are all just glad you are getting help. Hi, lad. We're proud of you. The first step to fixing a problem... Is to admit that you got one. Ah, uh, well, thanks for being so understanding. Uh, we simply want you to live as normal a life as you possibly can, uh, knowing what an incredible challenge that must be for you. Oh, why is that? Oh, well, you know. Uh, that is why therapy is so good for you. 
We all know that you sometimes like to... Uh, like to what? Uh, go to a happy place that seems real to you. Indeed. For you've unlocked this door with a key to imagination. Beyond it lies another dimension. A dimension of sight, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving through a world of both shadow and substance, of things and ideals. At the signpost up ahead, your next stop... The Twilight! Whoa! You guys think I'm living in some strange other world? Hi, lad. A magical world where he can talk back and forth with the animals. I mean like I'm doing right now. Are you? Are you really? <laughs> it's okay, old chap. We've all been there. Well, actually, I haven't been there. Nor have I. Wait, that's the kind of therapy you think I'm going to? Uh, newsflash, I'm going to physical therapy. Oh. Yeah, I tore a major muscle in my leg and it needs therapy to heal. In fact, I've got a shoulder that's bothering me too, so it's getting therapy as well, okay? I say, old chap, uh, do forgive us. Uh, we weren't aware. Hey, we didn't know you still had any major muscles. Max, it is okay, monsieur. It must be so difficult at your age to do uh, anything. Now, wait a minute. I can do... Da -da 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 monsieur... You just sit back. Hi. Uh, can I get you something then? No, I... Um... I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Could you... Could you bring me some ice? Hey, lady. And I could bring you a couple of ibuprofen or something for pain. That's really about all I can carry. <sighs> Nigel, oh, that would be wonderful. And I will bring you a saucer of milk. Thanks, Liz. And, and cookies and ice cream as well. Uh, the therapist thinks I should have plenty of ice cream and cookies. Uh, coming right up, lad. Uh, do you need another pillow? Or I can just sit here in your lap and purr. Oh, you guys are swell. Let's get two I pillows. Should keep that leg elevated, I'll go you get know. the cookies, then. Yeah, let me fluff this up for hey, you. Let's get you as comfortable as possible. Coming right up with the ice cream, then. Yeah, I know. They'll catch on eventually, but I think I'll milk this a little while longer. Oh. Coming, monsieur. Come to Madison. Here we go. I got the ice. Ha. Anyway, you do not want to miss the next couple of weeks as we're bringing you the last two climactic chapters of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. This is it, gang, the big finales. We'll see you again next week. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.